your divine power and in your word, we have everything we need for life and godliness. So Lord, we turn our attention to your word. We ask that you would cause it to come alive and transform our hearts. Spirit of the living God, we invite you to fall afresh here in this place and, and illuminate your word and soften our hearts to receive it. We give it our attention now and this is our worship. In Jesus' name, amen. More than 20 years ago, I was a college student going on my first summer mission trip to East Africa. I was there for the bulk of the summer, and I shadowed a, an African pastor for, for weeks on end. And I was 19 years old, out in the what they called the bush of, of eastern Kenya, uh, traveling from one village church to the next uh, of which this pastor was the overseer, a great man of God, and I learned so much from him. But this time changed my life because one unsuspecting moment when we were, we were probably walking 10 miles from one village to the next. And, um, and, and I, I was, I, I mean, you have to understand how thoroughly not looking for a theophany I was in that moment. Like a God revelation was the last thing in my mind. I had been eating food that was giving me the, you know, the rumbly stomach for a while. I was probably hot and grumbling about how you can't wear shorts and flip-flops on mission trips because you'll gravely offend everybody and they'll not want Jesus. And I was thinking all these snarky college things. And um, do you know Britt Hancock? I was, I was in the like week four of Britt Hancockism. So, you know, <laughs> you got to eat the food or they're going to hell. <laughs> and I, so I was, I was hanging in there like the hair in the proverbial biscuit. Um, see, we share cousins, crazy cousins. <laughs> But I, I was um, not feeling exceptionally spiritual, is the point. And you have to understand that I was Presbyterian, which means I was not used to God speaking to me or anybody for that matter. That really wasn't part of my spiritual diet. And so uh, I was walking along. We stopped for a breather. I stepped up over the, the side of the road and looked out across the African plain, and the Lord spoke to my heart, clear, unmistakable, unmistakable. You know those one or two times in your life that you know that you know if if you know nothing else ever that you know God spoke to you and you can stand on that, maybe that happens for you daily. I want you to lay hands on me because it happens to me like decadely, but this was the first. And um, the Lord spoke to my heart in, in an unmistakable way and said, you're not going to do the things you think you're going to do. You're going to serve me for the rest of your life and you're going to love it. And just like that, it ended. And I, 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 I was excited by that um, because I really sensed that God had something for me, but I had no idea what that meant or what I was supposed to do with it. And I had a very carefully crafted life plan. And so to know that um, God visited me and told me that my life plan was, was in fact fiction, um, and that was it, was, was the sum total of my first God encounter. Uh, and so that buoyed me up for a time. You know, I, I left for Africa a boy and came home a man full of, full of the stuff of God. But quickly, the, the novelty of that spiritual experience wore off, and I was left to ponder what exactly that would look like. How does that play out? What, if I don't do this, what do I do? So I explored a variety of clunky options, quitting college, um, going to Bible school, things that would seem would advance that sense of calling. But what I knew was that God had a hand in my life. Uh, I didn't know what that was supposed to look like, and so I remember going to worship uh, in, the, in the years that followed. I had to finish college. I owed um, you, my fellow taxpayers, four years of my life because you paid for my college uh, through Army ROTC. So thank you, by the way. Um, 
Yeah. And then I got sent to, um, to Fort Carson, Colorado, which is just south of Colorado Springs, which is where my life intersected with your fine pastor. Uh, and I kind of paid you back by blowing things up with tanks for four years. So you're welcome, I guess. It was a very non-me sort of thing to do in life. I had to fold up quite small to fit inside of a tank, but it was cool. And I'll never, ever, ever do this again after the fourth year ended sort of way. Um, but during that time, I, there I felt um, this sense, have you ever felt it, of, of futility and frustration in pursuing this God calling? Because God had told me my life was set apart for him. But here I was in the army. So not only was I, you know, I, not in the saving business, but I was kind of in the killing business instead. So I thought, so I was going 180 degrees to my perspective in the opposite direction of the plan it would seem God had for my life. What are you supposed to do with that? Well, I remember in worship, um, I don't know if you know this, but your pastor can sing. Like, he could sing. <laughs> and so it was really easy to experience. When you came from a church where the instruments were made in the late 1700s to that, it was every Sunday, open heaven season. I was like, oh. and so, And so Pastor Ross was singing. And have you ever seen him do this when he gets excited? Oh, he doesn't like it when I do it. But it's so very funny to me. So uh, he sings. And then the, that moment, like when your arms are up and the goosebumps come and, and the tingly moment. And then he kind of gets the one foot and does this. Does, does he ever do it? Because it's so like my, it's my liturgy. I mean, you say the Apostles' Creed, I do the Ross one-foot spin. And the Holy Ghost comes every time. Every time. So that was happening. And I was, I was really self-serious, as, you know, 22-year-olds can be about my calling. And so it was this prayer. If you ever do this? In the midst of worship, the goosebump moment, Ross had just done the one-footed spin. God, use me. You know, you get sort of the Charlton Heston voice because God hears that better. God, use me. And then your head goes back the second time. God, use me. And the third time you like fall to your knees and with a twinge of vibrato for effect. God, use me. And one of these worship times, it occurred to me that however earnest my prayer, it was sort of foolish and meaningless because here's the problem. God, did you know, is in the business of using people. This is who he is, what he's chosen to do from the beginning of human history. So asking God to use you is sort of like asking fire to be hot or asking water to be wet because it's by its very nature that way, and that's how God is. So it occurred to me somewhere along this process of maturity that the more meaningful prayer, however zealous and heartfelt mine would have been, would be God make me useful. What do you need to do in me? Ephesians chapter 2 famously reads in verse 8, we are saved by grace through faith. These are our evangelical watchwords. This is the banner that we wave over believe in Jesus nation. Born again Christianhood. Not by our works, but a gift of God, lest any of us should boast, right? That's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But did you know it continues? That, that thought train, that paragraph wasn't over, it would seem, because he says for. There's a, there's a conjunction there which conjoins two different ideas, right? For, this is true because of, or if you will, on account of the fact that. You're saved by grace through faith, no, about, no doubt about it. Not by your works. Because you are God's workmanship. 
created for good works in Christ from before the foundations of the earth were set in place. But you're like, whoa, 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 works. My, my Southern Baptist demons are coming out. You did, sorry, I have those. You may not. They're coming out. I'm feeling, I'm feeling legalism alarm going off inside of me. But it's not the works that saved you. It's the works for which you were saved. Every follower of Jesus, every New Testament believer has a purpose, a calling. Salvation, see, isn't the end. We sometimes frame it that way in our zeal, rightful zeal, to get people saved. That that's the end game, right? Jesus left us here so we could get people saved so that once they do, whoop, you won, you crack the code, they get beamed up to heaven, but it's not like that. It's more like the beginning. I remember at my high school graduation, the speaker stood up and said, this is your commencement day. It doesn't mean end. It means beginning. That's how salvation works. You were saved in order to get restored back to your factory default settings so that you could discover that you were created on purpose. And that's our premise this morning. Every New Testament believer, every follower of Jesus has a calling. And it wasn't that God chose your pastor or me or some other people to kind of put uh, the spiritual silver spoon in their mouth to do the work of the kingdom. Every one of us has that assignment. So the question as I grew into my young adulthood became, what must I do until then? Imagining that calling, that thing to which God awakened me in the African plains to be some distant horizon. While I'm waiting to get there, what do I do while I wait? Or what do I do in the meantime? So our title this morning, if you want one, is In the Meantime. We're in 1 Samuel, and we're going to look briefly at the young life of David. He gets a lot of attention, but I think his early years, his back pages, think Lost and the flashbacks, make the story more meaningful. So we're like looking at Jack before he was struggling with dad issues or whatever, okay? So this is David way back when, 1 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. The Bible reads, The Lord said to Samuel, the prophet, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Saul, of course, David's predecessor, the first king of Israel, and no sooner had he started winning battles than he demonstrated that he was, in fact, not a man after God's heart. So God rejected him, was sorry he made him king, and chose another one. Fill your horn with oil, God said to his servant, and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And so if you look down for the sake of time at verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. So the, the Lord told Samuel one of Jesse's sons was going to be the next king, and I guess you'll know him when you see him. The Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord's not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor is the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen any of these. So he asked, Jesse, are these all the sons you have? Well, there is still the youngest, Jesse answered, but he is tending the sheep. And you may know how this goes. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent and had him brought in. And he was ruddy. It says, and I want you to take note of this, with a fine appearance and handsome features. And I, I wasn't quite sure what that meant, so I looked it up. And ruddy, as it turns out, um, in the ancient language, means red or reddish in complexion. And um, 
I think that's important because I want you to notice that the Lord thinks reddish people are handsome. (laughs) And on behalf of fellow sort of Irish American nation whose ancestors lived under clouds for several millennia and didn't give us much much in the way of sun defense, you know, I've long since given up after turning 40, you just sort of make peace with yourself and the tools you got. I don't tan, I more pinkin. But the Lord evidently finds favor with that. (laughs) So the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. And then Samuel went to Ramah. Now, what's fascinating to me about these Old Testament stories, which 1 Corinthians 10 assures us, God gave us so that we have examples and warnings. So these are for us to dissect and learn from. Right, And I find it sometimes a challenge to remember that in addition to being a warning story, this thing actually happened. Like this stuff went down. And these were people experiencing this. The brothers, imagine resenting David. But I like to think of David going to bed that night, because he did, obviously. And Samuel didn't stick around and give context or explain anything. It seems that he did that, cracked the oil over David's head, and then left for Ramah without so much as an... contextualization or an explanation of how this is going to proceed. So there's David lying in bed that night wondering, what's this going to look like? How do I play it out? Well, I mean, if I'm David, I'd kind of expect to wake up the next morning and, you know, have a flaming chariot, like Elijah quality transit, pick me up and transport me to the palace, you know? Because once you've seen the, the, the fairy godmother, you kind of expect the pumpkin to get turned into a carriage. So, When David woke up the next morning, you can imagine his astonishment when what happened next was really nothing. Like his family had breakfast and everyone was like eating their cereal. They're like, so. That was weird. There was nothing that scripture gives us at all. David's life turned upside down yesterday, quite unexpectedly. Today, it turns right side up again with no explanation whatsoever. So his big issue seems to be, how do I live this thing proactively? How do I wait in 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 the most God-conducive way? How do I facilitate the plans of God? What can I do to participate? How do I, in a sense, live into this calling? And there's the, there's the proposition I want to give you this morning for you to examine. Don't take my word for it. Let the text and the Holy Spirit speak to your heart. But my proposition is that our callings are less arrived at and more kind of lived into, if you know what I mean. We want to make them this grand accomplishment that if we, if we go through the paces, if we pass all the tests, that one day, oh, we get there. Like, we level up, and then we're at the calling. But I think the calling is more the process than the product. I, as an engineer by training, prefer efficiency. Straight lines make more sense to me. But God seems to be in the circuitous route. He seems more interested in the process, in fact, than in the product. The calling seems to be substantiated there. One of my favorite Passages of poetry from German poet and philosopher Rainer Maria Rilke puts this in perspective. You are so young, he writes in his letters to a young poet. You are so young, so before all beginning, and I want to beg you as much as I can to be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart. Try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and books written in a foreign tongue. Do not seek 
the answers which cannot be given to you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is this, to live everything, live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Look down at verse 14, and the story continues. Now, the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. So we changed scene, and we're back at the palace. And an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. Okay, pause for just a second. Um, an evil spirit from the Lord. You can't read this and not stop and just at least give a, a word mention to it, because what on earth is that? How does that even work? Well, I um, prayed about that and thought about it, and um, the Lord spoke to me, and the truth of the matter is, uh, I have absolutely no idea, but he said that he woke Pastor Ross with a dream, and so just ask him after, he'll tell you. <laughs> it's kind of the role of the little brother. <laughs> Sorry. Okay, so an evil spirit from the Lord is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here for ser to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of his servants answered, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior, and he speaks well and is a fine-looking man. Ruddy, even. <laughs> and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. Uh, so there's a couple of things that we can take from this chunk of scripture, I think, to, to, to further our sort of investigation on this proposition. And the first is that demons evidently don't care for harp music. <laughs> like, who knew? But uh, fortunate for David, because he had not been... Hey, Bible scholars believe, by the way, that as many as 10 years had passed between the last chunk of Scripture and this. So uh, David had potentially waited a decade with no answers until the next installment in the story. So um, imagine that David would have been tempted not to to do much, kind of, you know, I don't want to damage the royal, callous the royal fingers with the harp strings or anything like that. You could justify any amount of slacking and laziness by that calling. But he had evidently gotten good at harp playing, which, who knew, served him well because they needed a, a sort of a demon-soothing harpist. And I don't know if David ever imagined that job was out there. It's not like he was playing, thinking maybe the king's going to have demon issues, and maybe demons don't care for harp music. So I'm going to get good. He just passed the time by doing something valuable. Let me offer you from the text three of David's secrets to living in the meantime. The first is find someone to serve. While you're waiting, you want to wait proactively, you want to facilitate and live into that calling, find someone to serve. Because here's the thing, David had been waiting and waiting to go and be the king, and instead, he gets to be the king's demon-soothing harpist, which I'm not sure where falls in the priority structure in the org chart of the palace, but it's got to be somewhere like just above the, the court juggler, you know, like do, 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 and then like the demon-soothing harpist. I mean, not the job he had been waiting for, right? How easy would it have been to go, I'm sorry, but that, <laughs> that's a little beneath me. 
you may not know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. I'm the Lord's anointed, so not going to do that. But you got to find someone to serve. And here he knows no one else but his brothers who resent him for it, and maybe his dad. Somewhere along the way, Samuel died, the one guy that had the facts straight. No one really knows that he's supposed to be the king, but kings don't serve kings, do they? Jesus said, you want to be great? Do you remember what the context of that? His disciples, right after he told them the, the whole story, that he had to go to Jerusalem and die. They were going to the city, and there was a kingdom of sorts, but they weren't, this thing is not going to be what you think it is, is really what he had said. You're kind of expecting me to put the, the beret on and grab the Kalashnikov and go all Che Guevara on, on the Romans, and it's not going to be like a coup d'etat. My kingdom is not of this world. And he tells them, actually, I'm going to get brutally killed. And they're like, hmm. Hmm. Hey, you know what? I really think I'm the greatest. Like, how did that transition even happen? It's such an awkward transition. But the scripture says that immediately afterward, they started arguing over who is the greatest. I mean, anyway, they're having this argument. And Jesus gathers them up, and he's like, you want to be great, guys? Here, come on, huddle up for a second. You want to be great? You want to be great? Shame on you. You're Christians. You should want to be losers. Didn't you know that? That's not what he said. He said, you want to be great in God's kingdom? Good. Because I made you for greatness. Now, let me tell you how to get it. You truly want to be great? Become the servant of all. One of my favorite quotes is from not a Christian at all. Mahatma Gandhi, though, spoke some of God's truth very memorably. The best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Fast forward to chapter 17 for the sake of time. We'll wrap this up. Verse 13. This is so great. I just love the word of God, don't you? Okay. War broke out. As, during this time, the Philistines and the Israelites were always fighting. So another war broke out, and Jesse's three oldest sons got drafted. So Eliab Benadab and Shammah were off fighting, and David was the youngest. So the three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep. So David had to fill in back at the farm because his brothers were of fighting age. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning, took his stand. You guys know the story. Jesse said to his brother, take to, to his son David, rather, take this ephah of roasted grain and these 10 loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Okay, what's happening here? David had at least had his big break. He'd been waiting, wondering, how's this thing going to go down? Like, how do I even get my foot in the door there? Samuel doesn't seem like he's going to do it for me. So God's going to have to do this. And then one day, he gets sent for, and, and he's on his way to the palace. And he's like, okay, so I'm going to be demon-soothing harpist. That's not exactly my next step that I envision, but it's, it's not the sheep. It's not the sheep, right? I'm going forward. I mean, I'm in the palace at least. And so I think David is... Um, Finally, if he's like you and me thinking, okay, I've arrived. Sheep behind me, hello future. And then war breaks out and dad calls him up. And you can imagine the scene. He's also an armor bearer at this point. And so he's kind of gotten moved up in the ranks or he's double hatting. And, and they're like, his dad calls and he's like, yeah, David, uh, since your brothers went to war, uh, I'm going to need you to come home and help me with the sheep again. I mean, you can imagine everything in him did not want to go back and forth tending the sheep. Having just, he is like us, right? Human being. 
And then here's what it says. He said, take this grain and these loaves. And then he says in verse 18, look at this. Take along these 10 cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are, are and bring back some assurance from them because they're with Saul and the men of Israel fighting in the valley of Elah against the Philistines. So David is walking down the road having taken a, a colossal step back in his calling to his experience, right? And... Um, to boot, his dad, he's, he's like a fighting guy. We learn that later. But he's not fighting. His brothers are in the war. And David, imagine the scene. He comes up and he's like, hi, Shama. Dad wanted me to check on you. And his brothers kind of look down on him. You get that picture because they saw him get anointed and didn't really care for that. So Shama's like, what are you doing here? And David's like, dad sent me to check on you. Well, yeah, well, I'm fine. I got to get back to a war. And David's like, oh, Shama, one more thing. Um, where's your commander's tent? And his, and his brother Shema's like, what do you need my commander for? He's like, just shut up and tell me where his tent is. I just need him, okay? <laughs> and and Shema's like, it's over there, but don't do anything embarrassing or stupid, all right? And so imagine they're like planning the war, and David's like, yeah, who is it? Sir, I'm David. I'm Shema's little brother. What do you need? Um, my dad asked me to give you these cheeses. This happened. This happened. I would have been out of there. I would have said, thanks, God, but I like the things I thought I was going to do. I'm going to go to law school after all. <laughs> David's second secret for living in the meantime, learn to thrive under authority. See, at this point, knowing that God had called them his dad's authority was voluntary in his life. He didn't have to go back. I mean, how easily could have he spiritualized this thing? Dad, I, I, I'm, uh, I'm not just the demon-soothing harpist anymore. I'm an armor bearer, and there's a war happening where armor is in need. So I got to shine that stuff up. I'd love to help you, but I just can't. I think the choice David made there, embedded in the code of this text through the millennia for you and me, is so clear. A choice not to submit to his dad and the sheep. To take a step, though, that did undoubtedly feel humbling and like 180 degrees going in the opposite direction in order to demonstrate to God, I, too, am a man under authority. So you can put people under me and trust me. The best leader's friends are always the best followers. Remember Jesus' centurion whom he commended? What did he say to earn that commendation? I am a man under authority with people under me. That's why what Pastor Ross told you is so important to him and me as pastors of independent churches because the best leaders are the best followers. And if somebody himself or herself is not submitted to a leadership authority structure, he or she should not be trusted. So what does this mean for you and me? Find some leaders. Find someone whose vision you believe in and embrace it as your own. Fortunately for you, this is a vision-rich house of God. You have two other communities of believers under the banner one chapel, seeking Jesus, worshiping in spirit and in truth, aiming to infuse their community with the life of God. And I think you have, what, seven more in the hopper? And then, <laughs> I think Ross was telling me they're going to happen next year. He was like... <laughs> He was like, the church is, is all, um, he, he was like, I was telling the church, guys, we really need to pace ourselves and slow this down. But they're all like, Ross, I think we can do seven next year. 
And so you guys, sweet. <laughs> but there is so much vision. It's in the air here. Do you see it? Do you feel it? It's not just about coming and participating, experiencing, getting the goosebumps, even though all that's great. You're a part of something. If this isn't your magnum opus, well, you know what? It's a pretty close facsimile. So find vision, come under it, and be under the authority of someplace. And you know what you do? Even if this isn't your ultimate end game, you mark yourself before God and the angels of heaven as somebody whom he can trust. Jesus said, you've been faithful with a little, so I'll entrust you with more. All right, we've got to wrap it up here. We're out of time. Verse 32, David said to Saul, whoops, verse 20, early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out reached the camp, heard Goliath shouting and taunting, and and into the story you know very well. If there's anything you learned in Sunday school, it was this. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go and fight him. You're only a boy, and he's been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, listen, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Now, what he probably didn't add is your servant has not been enjoying keeping his father's sheep. Your servant has not chosen or desired to keep his father's sheep, and your servant fought pro- probably several times wanted to chuck his father's sheep over a cliff, but nonetheless, he had been keeping his father's sheep. Let's see, I lost my place here. Okay, he had been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came out and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it and struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. And you know the way the story ends. I, as a child, learned this story in the era of flannel graph Sunday school. It was not nearly as cool as Sunday school is now. Did anyone else go to the Sunday school with the green flannel graph board? And so it was sort of like this. Goliath was nine feet tall, so he's sort of like, ah. And David was a boy and hapless with his five smooth stones, and so he was over here like this, <laughs> right, on the other side of the flannel board. And... Um, the way, no one exactly said this, but this was sort of the vibe, the ethos that was communicated the, as to how this happened was that, that David, sort of hapless but full of faith, which undoubtedly he was full of faith, grabs a stone and, and puts it in the sling and he sort of closes his eyes and, 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 and he relies on kind of a God intervention and he's sort of like, Father, guide my rock. You know, like, Father, guide my sword. That sort of moment, right? Okay, all right. Guide my, uh, guide my rock, and then and then David closes his eyes and releases it. And the way we've been sort of taught to believe this thing went down is that an angel was dispatched from heaven and intercepted the flight path of that rock and boom, guided it into the giant's forehead. David more astonished than anyone else, and the giant falls over and he's like, "Oh yeah, totally killed the giant." Oh. <laughs> Oh, thanks, God. You know, that's the way I grew up thinking this thing went down. And maybe it happened that way. I'm not saying it didn't. But what I'm saying based on the context that this scripture gives us is maybe, just maybe, David killed the giant that day and did it with relative ease. You know, maybe it wasn't just youthful bravado saying, hey, um... I know you guys are freaking out because of him, and I'm not trying to sound cocky and all, but and I really probably am okay without the armor, but um, it's really not that hard? It's because 
I've been chucking rocks at lions and bears for quite some time who are comparatively more nimble, agile, right? They move a bit more. He's kind of big and sedentary and loud and easy to find. And so maybe David killed, and so I think he's probably tripping over himself trying not to sound cocky, but maybe David didn't just kind of haplessly release this thing and rely on a miracle. Maybe he killed the giant that day and did it with relative ease, not because of a divine override, but because he was a good rock slinger. Is that possible? Because he had done it 10,000 times before. Do you see it? He'd killed his lions. He'd killed his bears. It wasn't really that hard. Now, here's the thing you got to see. If during any of that time he had gone, done what I might have been tempted to do and gone like, yeah, this whole shepherding thing, I mean, it was cool for a little while. I got to get the humble merit badge, and, and I waited my turn. But now I'm in the palace. I've moved up the ranks. I'm an armor bearer. I don't really want to go back. Forget the sheep. A lion gets it. I know I'm supposed to be king. I'm like, Dad, I'll buy you a hundred more sheep. But these are future royal hands. I'm not subjecting the royal digits to the mouth of that lion. That's insane. I'm not doing that. Take the sheep. I'll buy more later. I promise. That's how I would have reasoned this thing. And Pastor Ross knows it's true. <laughs> but David did the work along the way without any notion that this was the training that was going to be his breakthrough moment, right? Did the work along the way, and lo and behold, it turned into training. And that's his third subtle secret for living in the meantime. Treat it all like training. Whatever you're doing, look, if you're flipping burgers, it's not beneath you. If you're hanging I-beams in the heat of the Texas sun, God can use that. Take your whatever you're doing right now, give it to God. He'll take your burgers and I-beams and turn them into lions and bears. God is great like that. We just sang it this morning. He works all things together for good. If only you and I will take what we're doing now and do it with the zeal with which we imagine doing our magnum opus, God will take it where you are and make it into training and you'll be astonished how it prepares you for the things that he has called you to do. It's kind of like at the end of Karate Kid where Daniel's getting frustrated because he's like wax on, wax off and sand the deck and paint the fence. And he's like, man, finally he goes off on Mr. Miyagi, patience having worn thin. And he's like, dude, I waxed your antique car collection. I sanded your deck. I painted your fence. When do I get to learn karate? Do you remember this? And Mr. Miyagi's like, show me. Paint the fence. Yeah, wah. Show me. Sand the deck. Wah, yeah. Wah, ha, yeah. And Daniel realizes, preposterously, suspend disbelief, that he had, in fact, all the while been learning karate right under his own nose. That's what happened here. David had been learning to be the king who would be the deliverer of Israel and win the hearts of the people, and he didn't even know it. What's the point? Here's the practice. Take this if you will. Be faithful where you are, and he'll take you where he wants you to go. Be faithful where you are with what he's given you, and he'll take you where he wants you to go. Listen, your calling is really in a, a truer sense God's calling. Since what we read at the beginning as our premise, I asked you to at least examine that, was that he prepared it for you from before the foundations of the earth. It's God's more than yours. It's been his for like thousands of years or millions of years, depending on who you believe, Ken Ham, scientists, you know, I don't know. But it's been his for a lot longer than you've been alive. Point is, God cares more about your calling than you do. God cares more about his kingdom than you do. He who began this good work in you, is faithful to bring it to completion. 
If only we'll hold it loosely before him and allow him to work in us with the work along the way. Amen? Can you receive that? All right, would you stand up so I can pray for you? Father, thanks for my friends. What a privilege to share in worship, to receive the cup and the wine together, to experience Jesus with believers who love you and are part of the same family of God. What a privilege to open your word together. Lord, if anything I spoke is contrary to your heart, would you cause it just to fall to the ground? And if any of it is from you, would you cause it to sink in to our hearts? Lord, we want everything you have. Would you give grace to my friends in every area of their lives to thrive right where they are, that you would grow us into the people you've created us to be. We love you and we trust you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.